Those who need to rush to clinic at 9, don't be afraid, but we may run a little long with questions. Uh, welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds for February 26, 2014. A quick reminder that the Battle of the Badges Hockey in Manchester is Saturday <laughs> afternoon at 5 p.m. at the Verizon Wireless Center. Fill the building and fill uh, our philanthropic uh, funds. We're really excited because today's not only Pediatric Grand Rounds, but our annual Colin C. Stewart uh, Memorial Lecture in Pediatrics. And I'll read from our text on Dr. Stewart. Colin Stewart was born in Philadelphia in 1902. His father, also Colin C. Stewart, was a physician and moved his family to Hanover in 1904 when he was appointed to the physiology department at Dartmouth Medical School. Young Colin C. Stewart III attended Hanover schools and graduated from Hanover High, much like Dr. Stephen Chapman. He then went on to Dartmouth and graduated in 1923 magna cum laude and Phi Beta Kappa. He attended Dartmouth Medical School for two years and completed his medical school degree at the University of Pennsylvania, like Dr. Chapman and Dr. Ginsburg. <laughs> Following two years of internship at Philadelphia General Hospital, he became a fellow in pediatrics at the Mayo Clinic for three years. In 1931, he came to Hanover as the first pediatrician in the newly formed Hitchcock Clinic and as faculty member of the Dartmouth Medical School. He practiced here for 30 years until dying of what all reports describe as a rapid illness of several weeks on December 31st, 1961. He was the first school physician for the Hanover grade school and high school, like Dr. Shupkin and Dr. Chapman. He rose to the rank of professor of pediatrics at the medical school. He was a fellow of the American Academy of Pediatrics, New England Pediatric Society, and the New Hampshire Pediatric Society, which is active in many civic and medical activities throughout the state. He raised six children. The three sons all went to Dartmouth, but the three daughters were not afforded the privilege at the time. One of his sons, Andrew, was also a pediatrician and a resident here from 1961 to 1963. We certainly hope and expect that members of the family will be here at the end and will uh, hopefully share some memories for us. At his death, the Hanover Gazette said of Dr. Stewart, he was a skilled, sympathetic, and trusted doctor to whom nearly every family in the community turned at one time or another when children were ill. A colleague said, quote, night or day at the office or at home, on call or not, he was never too busy or too rushed to take the extra time needed to solve the problem, whether seemingly simple or hopelessly complicated. He created a proud tradition of patient care and teaching, of which we are all the keepers. And Steve Chapman, his good friend, will have the great honor to uh, present Dr. Ginsburg. But I just want to share how excited I am that Ken has joined us after chasing him around the adolescent medicine meetings the past three years to finally get it on his busy schedule. Steve? Thanks. Thanks, Steve. So we really, we've been trying to get him here for about two years, and I'm so excited that Dr. Ginsburg is here with us today. Ken's been a friend and mentor for me for a very long time, so I'm very excited to introduce him. So Dr. Ginsburg received his uh, uh, undergraduate degree from the University of Pennsylvania, where he also received his Master's of Education. He went to Alfred Einstein for medical school and returned to Penn for his residency and fellowship in adolescent medicine. He's been and is still the Director of Health Services of Covenant House, which is an organization that serves Philadelphia and New York's homeless and marginalized kids. Um, and I have to say, uh, having dinner with Ken last night reminded me of a time um, when I was a med student and Ken was a resident. 
and we were doing a screening in one of the homeless shelters in Philadelphia for women and their kids, and screening some referrals. And it was busy and chaotic, and there were people everywhere. And Ken took this girl, three or four years old, and just started dancing with her, <laughs> carrying her around the room. And the smile on that girl's face, in that place, at that time, was one of the most beautiful and amazing things I have ever seen. And even more so, the look on that mother's face of pride in her daughter made me, that was one of the moments where I knew I, needed, I wanted to be a pediatrician. So Ken has over 100 publications, including one I saw entitled, um, Our Kids Are Not Broken, They Are Sacred Beings. Um, he's received just about every teaching award there is at University of Pennsylvania, including the prestigious and coveted 2006 Ken Ginsberg Soul of Medicine Award. Do you get that every year? Is that <laughs> Um, he, uh, uh, he just published with the American Academy of Pediatrics just a few weeks ago um, one of the more ambitious uh, publications called Reaching Teens. It's an online and um, obviously a physical textbook of 450 videos that we'll be using here with the residents. Um, Ken's been on CNN, NPR, ABC, NBC, CBS talking about resiliency in teens. And I'm very excited and proud to introduce you to speak to us. Good morning. Um, I'm really thrilled to be here, to be in a place that is uh, Keith's home, um, and uh, to also come back with Steve. I want to tell you that uh, Steve was a medical student when I was a senior resident, and Steve changed our medical school. Penn Medical School is not the same place, um, because, really because Steve started a community-based outreach program. So that what became important at Penn Medical School was no longer just being um, scientific um, or working on a research project. It also became about community action and community justice. And the place has never been the same. And now it's a program that one that Steve started is now the largest program in uh, Pennsylvania uh, for medical students and for um, uh, lawyers and social workers and um, all um, uh, healing professions. So thank you, Steve. It's exciting to be in a division where the adolescent medicine person is the chair. Um, we're going to be talking today about uh, resilience. We're going to be, um, this is um, literally a two-day talk. I'm going to give you just an overview, just a sense of it. We're going to talk about applied resilience. Just how, what it looks like when we're with a human being using a strength-based approach. We're going to be talking most importantly about what it means to sit with a human being, and that's about eliminating shame. And that's about building strengths so that they, as the first step of behavioral change. We're going to be talking about not undermining people's confidence by talking to kids differently so that they own their own solutions rather than us shaming them, rather than us telling them what to do through lecturing. And finally, we're going to be talking about managing stress. Because if you want to walk away with a tool and you want to know how to make a difference in the lives of kids and you want to make it so that they don't choose those behaviors that are classically called at risk, it is about understanding why they do those behaviors. Behaviors. And the reason they do those behaviors is to try to feel better in any way that they can. So whether we're talking about um, sex or drugs or cutting or eating disorders, it's about kids trying to manage stress and telling them what not to do, it's not that effective. Instead, if we can, in our offices, give them a repertoire of what to do, it may make a difference in their lives. When we're talking about resilience, 
What are we talking about? We're talking about the ability to overcome adversity, the capacity to bounce back. In the pediatric model, which I'm gonna introduce you to, it's not just about recovery, it's also about thriving, thriving through good times and bad times. It is a mindset. Resilience begins with a mindset. To understand resilience, what you have to understand is that it's about stress. All right? It's about, to understand stress, you have to understand that we all come from the jungle. We are meat. And if you understand that we are meat, you understand how all, all of our hormonal systems interact as if a tiger is going to chase us, whether it is your histology exam or whether it is truly a man with a gun. And the first part of the mindset of resilience is to be able to tell the difference between what's a real tiger and what's a paper tiger. With the bottom line being, if it can't chew your face off, it's not a real tiger. All right, and if you know that, you can make lots of wise decisions. What resilience is not is invulnerability. In the beginning of the resilience movement, um, they were noticing some kids who made it no matter what. And then people began saying, there must be some children who are invulnerable. Not only are there no children who are invulnerable, nor would we want there to be. Every child has their threshold, but furthermore, what do we want for kids? We want kids to be able to grow up to be compassionate and warm and empathetic. What is it that breeds that within you? On some level, it's your own pain. So really, it is about how to deal with what life um, uh, brings you. It's not about Teflon. I could explain to you 60 years of research while standing on one foot, all right? The bottom line of resilience is that the kids who make it are the kids who have had at least one adult who believes in them unconditionally and who holds them to high expectations. Who is that adult classically supposed to be? That's supposed to be your parent. And when it is, we are additive. And when it's not, we are critical. And what does unconditional belief mean? Is that like, dude, it's okay to do drugs? Is that what unconditional belief is? No, it means I'm not going anywhere. You, you do not exist as a reflection of me. I'm not thinking about your success in terms of the bumper sticker I'm gonna put on my car. I'm not gonna choose to withhold or withdraw my love depending on who you choose to love. My love for you is unconditional. And it holds you to high expectations. What is that? Is that that I need you to get straight A's? Absolutely not. On some level, it is about effort, all right? But what it's really about is that what every kid needs is adults in their lives who absolutely are irrationally in love with them because of how deeply they know them. So I have two 18-year-olds. They're the easiest kids you could ever imagine raising. But we had our moments, right? And when we had our moments, who were they? They were the little girls who, when they were four years old, um, uh, when we were on a trip to Belize, they saw a chicken hanging out of a pot with the feet hanging out, and Tali came up to me and she said, Abby, did you know that when some people are eating chicken, they're eating real chickens? Why would they do that? Don't they like chickens? <laughs> they wouldn't let us turn off lights in the summertime. Why? Because there were moths hanging around the light bulbs, and we certainly couldn't kill bugs, but we couldn't even turn off um, the lights because the moths might get lost. We had to walk the moths out. <laughs> with, uh, with tractor beam flashlights, really. Um, that, uh, so that they could be with their moth grandmas. That is how delicious my girls are. And during the very worst of moments, all that I had to do is remind myself of how unbelievably and intensely I love them. And then they come back to you. That's what every kid needs, is someone who knows them deeply and loves them intensely. Because um, the other point you want to make about resilience is that kids live up to or down to your expectations of them. The rest is commentary. That's it. 
All right, that's what you need to know about resilience. But we've got about 45 more minutes, so let's go. Um, another thing that's good to know, and this is what I'm gonna cover with the residents intensely and anyone else who wants to come at noon. I'm gonna be talking about the trauma-informed movement, what we know about trauma, and why it is changing the model of pediatrics on a national level, which we're disseminating. All right, so what do we know? In very briefest terms, we know that kids who have been traumatized, meaning that they've been abused or neglected or witnessed violence or um, seen um, substance, intense substance use in their parents, um, what we know is that they are more likely to do drugs for themselves when they grow older. Does that surprise you? They are more likely to get viral hepatitis, to get divorced. Surprise you? Not at all. They're more likely to be obese. They're more likely to have heart disease. They're more likely to get diabetes. They're more likely to get strokes. They're more likely to get certain autoimmune diseases. Kids who are abused in childhood are more likely to get autoimmune diseases later in life. They're more likely to get certain kinds of cancer. They're more likely to get osteoporosis. When you've been abused as a child, you're more likely to get osteoporosis when you're 70 years old. This is all about hormonal interplay and about um, um, the uh, pituitary axis. It's, that's what it's about. So it's about brain changes. But here's the, here's the thing. So at noon, I'm going to teach that intensely. For now, all I want to say is that there is a magical unless. If you've been abused as a child, you are more likely to get osteoporosis as an old woman. You are more likely to die young. You are more likely to get divorced. You are more likely to get heart disease. You are more likely to be obese unless you had a loving adult who stood beside you. And if you did, you end up looking very similarly to everybody else. Which means that what we now know about adverse childhood experiences and the implications for lifelong health is not bad news, it's good news. Because it means that for those of us who care deeply about resilience and who care deeply about parenting, which is everyone in this room, it means that we are positioned not only to catch kids in the midst of abuse, but to teach parents how to break the cycle of hopelessness. I do a lot of work um, in Native America, and I'm working a lot with historical trauma. And what there is is an enormous amount of hopelessness. And you can't change society, but you can protect your kid within your home when hope returns to um, your parenting style. Um, here is the American Academy of Pediatric Model of Resilience. I masterfully stole this mostly from um, the uh, youth development people. The first thing you need is confidence. Um, we knew exactly where to get confidence from. We knew exactly how to give kids confidence. For 20 years, we had the self-esteem movement. Right? And the self-esteem movement was where the first day of kindergarten, what would happen is you would um, uh, draw butterflies, and the teacher was to go around and tell each kid how special they were. You, the red on your butterfly is so beautiful. You're good at red. You're so good at dots. And then the butterflies would go up on the walls. And each kid, the lesson for the day was what? Each of you, you're as special as a butterfly. And then what did we do? The next lesson was we would um, cut out snowflakes, white snowflakes. We'd put them on the wall. The lesson for the day, each of you, you're as unique as a snowflake. Parents were taught that the most important thing was for them to build, uh, have self children with self-esteem. So they were to praise absolutely everything that kids did. So kids would come down sliding boards and parents would go, yay, yay, good job, good job, with no, no um, credit ever given to gravity. Right? <laughs> And what we did is we raised this generation of kids to feel as special as a butterfly and unique as a snowflake. And what did we get? The highest rates of um, depression and anxiety we've ever seen. Kids falling apart in college. OK, why? Do you ever have those moments where you don't feel special as a butterfly? <laughs> yeah, those moments, right? 
And what we didn't do is we didn't prepare kids how to deal with those moments. Real confidence is not built by people showering vapid praise on you. Real confidence comes from people building your competencies, which means letting you fall down so that you can learn that you can stand up. All right, it means building your own intelligence and your own strategies to be able to solve problems, not protecting and not overprotecting. The bottom line of resilience is connection. The, you know, what's gonna give me a chance, uh, the opportunity to uh, take a chance? It's knowing that someone has my back. The more, the better. But up until now, you've got a gang member. Check that out. Gang members, deeply connected, highly competent, and an abundantly confident. That's not what we want, which is why we have to add character, having an understanding of what is right and wrong, all right? And as well as having that tenacity and that grit that allows us to move forward. Next, contribution, to be completely committed to repairing the world. Why? Because again, we want kids who are gonna be generous, who are gonna be empathetic. Right? But we also want people, the ultimate act of resilience during the worst of times is to turn to another human being and say, sister, I need a hand. What is it that allows you to do that without shame or stigma? It is knowing that there is no pity in the room. What is it that helps you know that there's no pity in the room when you serve? It is understanding that um, service feels good. So when one, someone takes care of me, when I am old and someone is changing me or feeding me, what I will know Rather than feeling as if that person pities me, which means shame will be in the room with me, what I will know is that that person serves me much as I have served others. Furthermore, it's more than that. All adolescents are held to low expectations. Adolescents walk down the street and people think, what's wrong with them? We have 13-year-olds and we think, uh-oh, adolescence is coming. So adolescents are held to incredibly low expectations. And you would have to dial up the volume 20-fold or more if you're talking about oppressed racial minority groups in terms of being held to low expectations. The other reason why we need kids out there contributing is because it's like immunization for knowing that you matter. We need every kid in America to be surrounded by thank yous rather than condemnation. And when we get kids out there doing what they need to do, then suddenly the grandmas are helping them. Um, you know, when you, when you help your, uh, the lady across the street shovel snow and she says, um, thank you so much, that teaches a kid you get credit for being good. Incredibly important for adolescents. The last, next thing is coping. The bottom line again being that um, uh, everything that we fear in adolescence is about them doing um, the things they're gonna do to feel better and we want them to move in the other direction. And the final thing is control. You either believe that the world happens to you or you believe that uh, uh, you have control over the universe. Dr. Ken, when your time comes, your time comes. You know, bullets are flying, I'm gonna live fast, I'm gonna die young. That is a human being who does not have an internal locus of control. That is a human being who believes like a hapless, that they are a hapless victim. And what we can do, and I can teach you the residents some techniques to do this in lunch, what we can do is we can return control to that human being. But where does it begin? It begins by teaching kids, parents, how to discipline. What does the word discipline mean? It means to teach. When parents think that it's about control, you do what I say, why? Because I said so kids feel small. When parents learn to return the control to the kid, my goal is for you to become independent, my goal is for you to grow, but my job is to keep you safe. And I will give you increasing responsibilities and increasing privileges, and all that you need to do is earn them. When we do that, kids feel large, and they begin to understand that they control the consequences. Let's talk about confidence. Let's talk about behavioral change first. 
If you took all of the behavioral change theories and you put them in a blender, here's what they basically say. They basically say that there are five steps to behavioral change. The first step is you gotta be aware. If you're not aware, you're not gonna possibly take any action. And we spend an awful lot of time talking about pre-contemplation, which is the people who are not even aware. And then what do we try to do to change them is to make them aware by giving them facts. Once you're aware though, you're not gonna do, you're not gonna take action unless you're personally motivated. You have to believe that the problem affects you. If you don't believe that the problem affects you, you're not gonna possibly take action. Right? So we used, to, we used to try to scare kids to make them understand that the problem could affect them. Now we understand it's more important to create culturally sensitive messages so that people see themselves in every problem you're talking about. But if you only make someone aware and you only make someone motivated, but you don't give them skills, how do they feel? How would you feel if I said to you, HIV can be an incredibly deadly disease and it can happen to people just <laughs> like you? But I don't tell you how to put on a condom. I don't tell you how to deal with a partner who says to you, um, uh, well, you want that between us? Or what, are you going out on somebody? Are you not trusting me? Or maybe I shouldn't be trusting you. If we don't prepare someone to do that, how do you feel when you're more aware and more motivated but don't know what to do? How do you feel? Scared, frustrated, stressed. Stress drives all negative behaviors and you've done more harm than good. So skills are incredibly important in our repertoire building the um, uh, progress towards behavioral change. Next, people go through this process of weighing the costs and benefits. And as they weigh the costs and benefits, they're only gonna move forward if they, if they perceive that the new behavior is better than the old behavior. So I'm a 16-year-old guy and I'm thinking about quitting smoking cigarettes and that's great because my teeth aren't gonna be yellow, my uh, clothes aren't gonna smell, when I kiss her she's not gonna go ooh and I'm gonna save $8 a day. But damn, I'm nervous. Is that kid ready to quit? Only when you give them stress reduction strategies, which is why we're going to be spending 20 minutes at least on stress reduction strategies this talk. Because if you tell people what not to do without telling them what to do, it absolutely doesn't work. Um, so they go through this process of trial and error, and this is about giving uh, um, coping strategies. And then finally, am I going to keep this new behavior or not? Am I going to maintain or relapse? And that's about what people around you tell you, um, how they reinforce it. So I want to be um, uh, a virgin until I'm married. Are people going to say to me, Ken, I'm really proud of you. You have a strong religious center. Or are they going to say, what's wrong with you, man? What's going to happen when I turn on the TV set and I'm 16 years old? So I, true story, reached puberty like basically the day before I was 16. And there was a movie starring Lance Kerwin called The Last 16-Year-Old Virgin. <laughs> Thank you very much, Lance. All right? So what is going to happen? What is society's image of kids? And that is why we don't use the word at risk. Because if you have a kid walk into a program that is called an at-risk program, then what happens is as they begin to move, uh, are, am I going to lose the ability to continue to be in this program? This is what kids, this is what people want from me. This is what gets credit. This is what gets money. And then you learn to not go in the direction that you want to go in. All right? Um, yes, I am hyperactive. So <laughs> uh, here is what everybody is missing. Confidence is what gets it started, and shame is what paralyzes everything. It is about demoralization. When we are talking about pre-contemplation, it's as if it is this black box, but we who work with teenagers understand something. What we understand is it's not that they don't know, it's not that they haven't heard, it's that they don't believe in their potential to change because they are demoralized, because they have absorbed too many messages that say that they are less than or not good enough. So what are we gonna do? 
We're going to build confidence in their lives by finding the competencies. This is a field of someone's life. This kid's smoking marijuana, which is incredibly personally devastating. This kid's selling drugs, which is devastating not only to himself, but to society at large. And this kid wants to become pregnant. She's only 15 years old. Does she not understand what's going to happen in terms of intergenerational poverty? Does she not understand that she's going to sap society of her resources? So what do we do? In all of our wisdom, we wrap our hands around the problem. We give them three to five reasons why they should change. You know, does that inspire you? Let's do the kid with marijuana. Don't you understand that marijuana will fry your brain, make you grow breasts, and shrink your balls? Do you not understand this? <laughs> All of which is factually true-ish, okay? So, but that's what we do. Does that inspire you to change? Does that kid say, well, thanks, doc, now I feel empowered? <laughs> what does that kid do? Thanks, doc. <laughs> because all you've done is stressed him more. When you just look at a behavior and you give a bunch of facts intended to give them the reality, but they know the reality, all that it does is stress them more, which drives them towards their negative behavior. What are we going to do? We're going to use the power of love. Love not meaning romantic love, but love meaning agape, mahaba, um, chesed, the love of humanity. We're going to bring into the room what we already know and what we already have. We're going to bring to our room the reason we went into this field. We're going to see kids as they've never been seen before. We are going to reflect it back to them as they've never heard. And when we do that, we break demoralization. And only when we do that do we have kids who need us the most who are beginning to listen to us. So what are we listening for? We're literally listening for what it is that makes your heart quiver when you listen. Okay, we're looking for the kid who's resilient in a life that would have destroyed you. We're looking for a kid who's compassionate despite the fact that he was shown none. We're looking for a kid who was abused, um, but all he wants to do is to turn out and become a social worker to help other kids. Okay, we're looking for the kid who grew up in a home that where the um, father used to beat the mother, but he takes out his phone and he shows you the picture of his girlfriend and talks about how important it is that he's good to her. We're, this is what we're looking for. So the kid who's smoking marijuana, kids who use drugs are my favorite kids, okay? I abhor drug use. I'm the most anti-drug guy on the planet. Nothing goes in this body stronger than green tea, okay? But kids who use drugs are my favorite kids. Why? You know, there's so many different ways of dealing with pain, right? You can cut it out. You can sex it out. You can fight it out. You can starve it out. There's so many ways of dealing with pain. Who are the kids who, want to, who use drugs? What are they trying to do? Or what are they trying to become? Say it. Numb the pain. They're trying to become numb. What kind of people try to become numb? What kind of people? Those who care. Those who feel. So my intervention with the kid who's going to use drugs is going to look something like this. Man, do you ever feel like your head is just spinning? You know, you think about things so hard. You try to fix things at home, but you don't seem to be able to. You try to fix things at school and point out the problems, but no one's listening. People look at you, you know, and they look at you and they, and they, and they, and they say, like, you know, you don't care. But that's because they don't even begin to know you. And then you go to bed at night, you have trouble falling asleep because your head's spinning. You wake up at 4 in the morning, you just can't thinking. You can't stop thinking. And thinking hurts sometimes. But when you grab that, that uh, L, about a minute later, 
your head stops spinning and that feels nice. Do you ever feel like that? And the kids go, exactly, exactly. <laughs> now you say to the kid, well, you know what a man like you, a man with your depth of emotions, a man with this much passion, a man with this capacity to feel, I need you, I need you. I need you to grow up with a clear mind. I need you to stay motivated. The very feelings that you have that are so hard for you to have during adolescence are exactly what's going to make you the kind of man who's going to change my world. I know it hurts now, and I can't fix it. But you can later, unless, unless you allow this drug to take away the one thing that you really have going for you, which is your drive. And that's exactly what marijuana does. Can we talk about something else, some other way of dealing with what you're going on with, what you're dealing with? Some other way, but so that it won't lose what is the greatest thing within you. That's one example. But the bottom line is, what I'm reporting back to the kid is, I love you, I love you, I love you, without using the word love, because that can be creepy, right? <laughs> so it's, it's just, I love you, I love you, I love you, based on the story that I've heard, based on real stuff that I've heard about you. Pause, deep breath, but I'm feel so I love you, I love you, I love you. Pause, deep breath, but I'm feeling worried about you. Is there something we can do to come up with this plan? How can I serve you? Heart, stomach, head, hands. I'll give you more examples at lunch. Um, the idea being that we want to look for what is right in a kid, knowing that when we find that, and only when we find that, will we overtake the, kid, overtake the field of risk. This is not full-scale behavioral change. This is getting those kids started who don't believe in their potential to change. Next, we also want to build competence in kids. And that means not undermining their competence. So there's a few things we need to do. We need to allow kids how to make mistakes. So I don't know your name. You. Anne. Anne. So I'm so sorry. We had this lovely conversation about I'm horrible with names. So the first thing I would do with the medical students when they come in is teach this group of medical students who have learned that in order to get into medical school, you have to get top grades, go to Botswana to build a water purification system for HIV positive children, okay? Um, and they've never been allowed to make mistakes in their life because the stakes seem so high, and I teach them how you make mistakes. It's the first thing I would do. And one of the things that we need to do is um, uh, we need to, in general, teach kids how to fall so that they know how to recover. Because if kids do not learn how to fall during adolescence, they will fall during adulthood. Adolescence is about learning how uneven you are. You are looking right now at the single most uneven human being in the world. All right, I'm seriously good at what I'm good at. But watch, this is true. This is North. And so is this, <laughs> right? I can't turn a screwdriver uh, without the little straight thing getting all crooked. I'm serious, okay? The most uneven person in the world. I can't read an EKG. Full professor, Ivy League Medical School, I can't read an EKG because my brain doesn't slow down. But I've learned all the compensations. I know how to be um, use humor to get a consultation. You know, I know all the things I need to do. People are uneven, and so are kids. Next, we have to talk to kids in a way that they can learn to um, uh, learn to um, take solutions. So how how can uh, so we begin by thinking? I'm five years old. How do I think as a five year old? I'm a concrete thinker, right? I see things exactly as they are. I, do I think about future consequences of current behaviors? 
No, I can't, right? So if you say to me, like, here's a dollar bill, I'd like you to go to the Wawa and I'd like you to get yourself a Snickers bar, um, but I really strongly inve uh, suggest investment in a 529 plan, <laughs> right? What does that kid do? And how does that five-year-old view people? People are good or bad, depending on what? What you give me. Is that cookie for me, me, me? Thank you very much. So do you see how dangerous it is to be a child? I'm five years old and I don't understand the complexity of the universe. I don't understand the complexities of human beings. What do we do to keep kids safe? We watch them. We watch them really closely. All right, now I'm walking through adolescence where you should be watching me closer than ever, but you're not. And now I am an adult of the very same height, but how do I think now? How do I think now? If that was concrete thought, what is this? Abstract thought. So remember only 85% of people reach abstract thought. Remember that all people in times of crisis go concrete, highly relevant to working with oppressed populations or traumatized populations. Everyone goes concrete. But how do I think as an abstract thinker? Do I understand that what I'm doing right now has future consequences? Can you? Yes, you can now talk to me about emphysema. You can talk to me about lung cancer. I get it. How do I view people? Are people good or bad? Suppose someone noticed how exquisitely handsome I was, right? And they, they, they take me out to dinner and they get me, um, they have me get the most expensive stuff on the menu. They're incredibly flattering. After dinner, we go um, to buy a new sweater, buy new sweet, uh, sneakers, and they ask to touch little Ken. What do I say? What, is it okay I said that on grounds? What, is, what do I say? What do I say? I, do you need help with this one? <laughs> I say no. What do I understand about, about that person that makes me, what do I understand about their kindness and their generosity and their flattery? What do I understand? That they wanted something. Do you know how powerful it is to understand that? What an important and protective thing it is to understand that people can be manipulative. Where did I pick this up? I picked this up in adolescence. So I'm a 14-year-old girl, and a guy comes up to me. He says, um, I love you. Do I say, I question the veracity of that statement, <laughs> right? So what do I do instead? Um, I say, I love you, too. And then he says, well, words aren't good enough between us, right? And then they make love. And where's where he the next day? Gone. So gone. And she moves from here to here towards the safety of adulthood. And she will not fall for that line again, but she will continue to make many different mistakes. And with each mistake, her cognitive wheels will be oiled. And at the same time, we have development on our side, right? The brain is changing, hormones, we have development on our side, but her cognitive wheels are getting oiled. And if all we cared about was learning, and we were learning theorists instead of mommies and daddies and interventionists, we would say, get out of the way. Born mommies and daddies and interventionists. We understand the complexity of human nature. We understand how what we do now can affect the future. So what do we do? We tell them. And how do we tell them? We tell them in a lecture format, which I'm going to give you right now. Don't you understand that what you're doing right now, which I'm going to call behavior A, could easily lead to consequence B. If consequence B happens, you're more than likely to go into consequence C. Sam, I never considered the possibility of consequence C happening to you. But, but now I look at you and I wonder what's between your ears besides cobwebs. If consequence C happens, we could go directly on to consequence D, which God forbid could lead to consequence E. Keith, I never considered the possibility of my little boy doing consequence E. But then you began hanging out with Steve. Steve's own mother doesn't love him. <laughs> if consequence E happens, you're going to go on to consequence F, which could go directly down to con Look at me, young lady, when I'm talking to you. This is not for my own good. If consequence G happens, we're going to go to consequence H, which could lead directly to consequence I. And do you know what happens if consequence I happens? You die is what happens. <laughs> and what does the kid hear? Die. <laughs> Why? Listen again. A goes to B, which goes to C, which goes to D. There are several intervening variables that will make a difference to the ultimate outcome variable. That's algebra.
You cannot speak algebraically to a kid who's in crisis. You cannot speak algebraically to a kid who is not cognitively equipped to understand it. It's too abstract. So when we speak in that way, kids understand our condescension. They understand that we do not think they are capable, but they do not understand a word that we're saying. And we undermine their competence. And we force them towards rebellion. Because our hysteria, our condescension, is offensive. What are we going to do instead? What we're going to do instead is we're going to change our mathematical cadence. We're going to honor the intelligence and the cognitive capacity the kids do have. We are going to give them information in small sound bites. We are but facilitators. They are experts in their own lives. And then what we are going to do is we are going to basically do it in simple math. Huh, so you're thinking about doing behavior A. I, I think I get that. But I have to be honest with you. Sometimes I worry, Melissa, about that going on to behavior B. Um, do you have any plans to make sure that doesn't happen? Nice, good, thank you. Wow, that does make me feel better. And when she's at B, and only when she's at B, and only when she has owned her own competence to get to B, do we invite her to consider C, using the same kind of um, techniques until she figures it out, so that she gets it, gets it, gets it, gots it. And when she gets it, who owns the solution? She does. And when she owns the solution, everything changes. You've taken shame out of the room. You've built her competency. And when kids own their own solutions, things are quite different. Again, at noon, I will give you some examples of that. And there are tons of examples in that book as well. All right. Actually, let me just give you one. Um, <laughs> just, just um, uh, the, the one technique is a choreographed conversation where you know exactly where you're going to go, but um, you don't know. Um, but the kid doesn't know where you're taking him. Um, the master of all choreographed conversationalists was Bill Cosby. Okay, really, best parenting show ever on TV. And um, so, do you remember the one where Theo gets a D on a test? Theo gets a D on his test. Don't forget, mom's a doctor, uh, a lawyer, uh, dad's a doctor, and they want him to go to Morehouse, which they call Hillman. Bill explodes. What do you mean you're going to get? What do you mean you're going to get? Um, uh, how, how are you going to get D's on tests? How are you going to get into Hillman? And Theo went, "Don't worry about me, dad. What do you mean I shouldn't worry about you? I'm not going to college." The lecture began. Can you imagine the lecture? You're not going to college. Well, what, what's going to happen? You're going you're to get some sort of job. It's going to move overseas. And then you're going to become homeless. I, and then you think girls are into homeless guys? Well, they're not. And then I see you having $40 in your pocket, walking down the liquor store, um, uh, picking up a bottle of, of, of cheap wine. And then you're going to um, be frothing at the mouth, laying on the ground. And a bunch of teenagers are going to come by and kick in your cirrhotic liver. And then you're going to Die! <laughs> all, right. all that would have done would have been at, to have activated Theo, to have made him feel powerless, and to have made him feel like he, um, his father didn't get him. Um, Theo, so what are you going to do if you don't go to college? You know, Dad, I was going to be a regular person. Yeah, well, what do regular people do? You know, get a job. You know, do you know anybody who's gotten a job your age? Um, yeah, I have this friend, and he, he works at a gas station. Well, how much does he make? $8 an hour. And they figured out that was $1,200 a month. And Bill said, that's a lot of money. And he was I know. <laughs> and Bill gave him $1,500 um, in uh, Monopoly money. Remember this one? Yeah. $1,500 in Monopoly money. Theo begins counting the money. Thank you, Dad. And the first thing Bill says is, oh, by the way, the tax man comes to regular people first. <laughs> um, he, takes, he takes a chunk of money. Then he says, by the way, Theo, where are you going to live? Because you're not living here. And Theo said, um, I was thinking about getting myself a bachelor pad. Very very nice. We're about, I don't know, like Upper West Side? Nice. Takes all the money. And Theo says, I'll live in Jersey. 
and then he takes car money and gas money and toll money. Um, and then he says, um, Theo, um, it seems pretty important to you that you look good. Theo goes, Dad, I don't care what I look like. The ladies care what I look like. And Bill takes $100. And Theo says, Dad, I'm sorry with you. I want to look really good. And hands him another $100. Um, and then he says, Dad, this is great. I'm not wasting my time in school. And I've got my own car. I never imagined that. And, and um, I'm looking good. This is, this is awesome. And, and his dad says, Theo, you have a problem. What's that? Theo, you haven't eaten yet. He takes all the money, and Theo says, I'll eat bologna and peanut butter. And he takes the money back. He's got 40 or $50 in his hand. Anyone remember what his father said? Girl yeah, you can have a girlfriend. And Theo went like, "Oh yeah," and Bill went, <laughs> and on the show, Theo went like, "I guess I better hit the books, Dad." <laughs> That's genius parenting. The direction of power lies within the kids. They are experts in their own lives. We are facilitators. We use concrete, short steps. Next, let's talk about coping. Resilience at its core is about learning to cope in a positive way with life's inevitable stressors. We're going to do our greatest good, without a doubt, by um, raising kids with this repertoire. Stress is incredibly uncomfortable. It's so uncomfortable, it makes you sweat, it makes you smell, it makes you not be able to think clearly. It is so uncomfortable that you got to do something about it. Doing something about it is called coping. There are positive ways of coping and negative ways of coping. But if you read the word positive and negative as a negative doesn't work, then you're misreading everything. The negative ways of coping actually work fantastically. Drugs and sex and violence and eating disorders, these things work. The reason they are in a negative category is because they end up leading to more stress and the cycle continues. Whereas those things that are in the positive category, which are classically more difficult to do, end up taking you towards um, relief. What do we want to do? In secondary prevention, we want to um, congratulate. We don't want to condemn these behaviors. We want to congratulate and recognize the purpose of these behaviors, invite people in a healing plan to come up with other strategies. In primary prevention, and the reason I made a shift into being kind of a book dude kind of guy, and a doctor, of course, but is that if we um, can teach parents to raise kids with a wide repertoire of positive coping strategies, then we are thankfully largely out of business because kids will not be doing some of those things we fear the most. What's the first thing we want to do? First thing we want to do is help kids define the stressor. Here's cognitive behavioral therapy in one slide. Hey kids, ask yourself three questions whenever something's bothering you. The first thing is, hey, is this a real tiger or a paper tiger? Bottom line being, if it can't chew your face off or kill you, it's not a real tiger. Hey kids, ask yourself whether how you're going to feel in a week, how you're going to feel in a month, how you're going to feel in a year. Because if the answer is, I'm going to forget about this, then this is not a problem. Just as your grandmother told you, like you should always say to yourself, this too shall pass during the worst of times, this is not a problem. And for those of us who are particularly crazy, which is essentially everyone in the room, even when good things happen to us, we begin worrying because we think we may not have deserved it. Next. Um, in 2006, the Academy asked me to kind of review the literature and come up, uh, you know, literature with an evidence-informed um, coping strategy. And what I'm about to give you ever so briefly, I'm giving you a one-hour talk in 15 minutes, is we needed, we needed strategies that were going to help kids engage with problems, and we needed strategies that were going to help kids disengage from problems. Because if we didn't give them strategies to disengage, then they were going to find drugs. Because that's what dis that's what drugs are. We need people to be able to deal with their emotions, but we also need kids to deal with their problems. 
So here's a stress plan for teenagers that probably works for adults as well, but as you know, I'm not licensed to uh, treat you. So um, 10 points, not 10 steps. It's not a 10 step uh, program. They use different things at different times. The first thing, and most of the counseling techniques that, uh, that I've developed are really all about problem number one. Uh, it is about making the problem manageable. As long as a human being sees a problem as a mountain, they look at the top and they say, I could never get there. They look at the base and they say, I could never go around there. And they are disempowered. When instead, people understand that every mountain is in fact just a series of hills piled on top of each other, and all I have to do is step up on the first hill, and when I get there, my vantage point is different. Suddenly, the peak of the mountain doesn't seem so unattainable. Right? So it's about taking big problems and breaking them down, much as Bill did with Theo. That's one technique, mountains into hills. This is about making lists. It's about dealing with social problems, all sorts of things. Next, active avoidance. If you are working with a kid on drugs and you put them back into the community, what do you do? You have them try to figure out what their triggers are. What are their people, places, and things that are likely to stress them out? And you teach them how to avoid those stressors so that they don't um, uh, re-trigger themselves. Why would you wait till a kid's on drugs to teach them that? Why would you not teach an eight-year-old that? Why would you not teach an eight-year-old that if there's a kid at school who's a bully, you go to the principal? If there's a kid in your neighborhood who's a bully and he only acts out when you go to his, around his house, don't go to his house. Next, letting some things go. In the world of resilience, it is quite controversial um, as to the role of optimism. Um, I am not one of the people who's into optimism. How would an optimist see this cup? Half full, which is lovely, but it also might mean that it's good enough. And they're not going to take further action, right? They're always going to be satisfied. Other optimists are like energizer bunnies, thinking that they can fix things that they can't fix. If you ask people who have really been resilient during the worst of times, it is about people learning to conserve their energy. You know when to fight, you know when not to fight. Uh, otherwise, you become the animals that they say you are. Direct quote from my mother-in-law. Okay, no, seriously, in Auschwitz for three and a half years. Okay, so, so direct quote from her. You, you figure out where you can fight, you figure out where you can't fight, and you let it go, or you become the animal that you, that, um, you said that they say you are. Okay, so that's an optimist. I mean, so we don't want that kind of optimism. How does a pessimist see this cup? In which case, you're never going to take action. What I want, and what my mother-in-law would tell you, is you want to see this cup as exactly as it is. This cup is filled halfway. Am I, is this going to satisfy my thirst? Or I'm thirstier than that. Where's the faucet? Right? So you want people to have a realistic understanding with a hopeful disposition. On the wall of every recovery program in the country, Lord, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. If I had five minutes with every kid in America and I wanted to teach them how to cope, I would focus on exercise. Why? We all come from the jungle. I am in my jungle chair right now. A tiger walks into the room. What is it that I need to do? I need to run. What is the first physical sensation that I'm going to have? I'm going to get butterflies. I'm going to get a sinking sensation in my belly. Why? Because the 40 to 50% of my blood that's hanging out in my belly needs to go to my butt, which is my jumping muscle, and then immediately into my legs. That's m part of what butterflies is. Isn't that cool? <laughs> All right. Then I'm going to sweat as I, as I run. And then I'm going, my pupils are going to get big. Why? So I can jump over the log, um, even if I'm running. I'm breathing fast. Why? So I can oxygenate that blood. Um, I can't think clearly when I'm stressed. Why is that? Because I'm not supposed to. I'm not supposed to turn the tiger and say, is there any way we could work this out? <laughs> All right? 
So when I, use, when I exercise, what I do is I communicate to my body that I have escaped the tiger. So from my view of mental health, everything is about us coming from the jungle. I can explain almost any mental health condition in terms of jungle dynamics. The easy one to explain is anxiety. There could be a tiger there, it could be there, it could be anywhere, right? But when you run, this is well proven, when you exercise, you will burn up those stress hormones and you're, you will regain your mind. And when you don't run, what do you believe? You believe that the tiger is still around. You believe that the tiger is still present. Therefore, you remain vigilant. And therefore, you need to be ready to jump in any one of many directions at any minute. What do you need your blood pressure to be if you're going to be able to jump at any minute? High or low? High. High. So that is why the dominant hormone in your body becomes cortisol. That is one of the major reasons of that trauma affects. When kids are chronically abused and they're not running from the tiger, the tiger is in their bedroom, then what happens is they have cortisol as the dominant hormone in their life and everything changes in their life. Exercise is key. But sometimes you can't exercise. Sometimes you need to be able to um, just relax. When someone comes to you with that bio test, you can't go, excuse me, you gotta run. <laughs> right? You've got to relax. So let's return. So science lesson continues. There are two nervous systems in your bodies, kids. There's the voluntary system, which says walk, walk, talk, turn. And there's the involuntary system, which says beat, beat, breathe, digest. Within the involuntary system, there are two parallel systems. Kids, that means that they never touch. They might interact, but they never touch. All right? And so, kids, um, this involuntary system has these two halves. One is, I'm chilling. And the other is, there's a tiger chasing my butt. All right? What that means is that if we can figure out how to turn on the I'm chilling system, since it's one on or the other, then what happens is we can flip the switch towards becoming relaxed. We can do it. Um, and uh, we stop feeling stress. Let's figure out how we do this. This is, by the way, how I work with somatic patients, another choice point for lunch. Okay? Um, so let's return to the jungle chair. I'm in my jungle chair. What can I control? Can I, by choice, get the blood from my butt back to my belly? That can't be the switch. Can I get the sweat back into my pits? That can't be the switch. What can I do? What can I control? Absolutely. So all of Eastern medicine is about breathing, um, deep meditative breathing, not sexy man breathing, <laughs> but really deep breathing. I work with the most traumatized kids on earth. Um, they can't sleep. I teach them how to breathe to sleep. Okay. Um, again, beyond the scope of the 10 minutes we have left. But um, when we teach people how to use breath, that is the most basic biofeedback. What do, we do, what do I do with kids with chronic pain? Most basic biofeedback, put them in a bathtub. Okay, um, it's uh, not too hot, warm, you're naked, so it's fun. You put your ears underneath the water, and as you put your ears underneath the water, then you can hear sounds that you can't normally hear, like you're breathing in your heartbeat. What do you do? You breathe. And as you breathe, your body acts as a balloon, and you go up, and you go down, and you go up, and you go down, and suddenly check your pulse. Listen to your heart, it's gonna go down. We can teach ourselves to relax when we understand the power of breath. Nutrition is profoundly important. I'm just gonna skip it because of time. Sleep, also incredibly important. Um, you know, and this is all in the book, which you can Xerox these sections, give them to anybody you want. Um, but um, sleep is, um, you know, teaching people how to breathe, teaching people about sleep hygiene. Now let's get to the emotions. 
We want people to be able to disengage without using drugs. That means we want people to learn how to take an instant vacation. So scientifically, what is the best thing that works? The best thing that works scientifically is uh, reading a book. So in this category are things like uh, taking walks, working on hobbies, listening to music. So my thing was music, but think about escaping through music. When you're escaping through music, you still have lots of room for the emotions to come. In fact, it activates your emotions. The, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're often thinking about sex, which is a source of stress for almost every adolescent, or I think every adolescent. So we're actually not necessarily helping them. When you read a book, though, if you do a functional MRI of someone reading the book, the visual cortex is lit up, they are seeing the panorama, they are hearing the sounds, they are smelling the smells, they are feeling the feelings. And when all of your body is, is, is inundated, flooded, you can't deal with your stress. So we teach kids how to read for pleasure. But sometimes we need kids to do the really hard work. Can I go till nine? And then we'll do questions five after. Um, so um, sometimes you have to deal with the really hard stuff. Um, because if we don't, we're going to become numb. So in the perfect world, I'd be here for a week. In the perfect world, I would talk to each of you about the stress in your life and what happens and what does it take to prevent burnout. But I speak now very intensely to the residents in three minutes. So in the perfect world, I would talk to each of you. But since we can't, let's do me. <laughs> so I began um, working um, with Native Americans in uh, South Dakota um, when I was 19 years old. And I saw pain that was immeasurable and inspiration that has changed my whole life and my whole worldview. Um, then I began working with street and homeless kids, where I saw things that, uh, you know, kids who were thrown away for reasons that I, I, I can't even begin to explain. And then I went to Children's Hospital Philadelphia where I began residency. And you know, for me, that was a little bit of a problem because I have a different kind of brain than most doctors. And so a lot of times I had imposter syndrome, so it was a little source of insecurity, but I'm all good now, right? <laughs> but I did not cry for seven years. I did not cry from the time I was a second year resident and the attending doctor in the intensive care unit asked me to go to the father and to have him sign the organ donation papers on two of his daughters. Um, and he said to me, because uh, we had just declared them brain dead, and he said to me, doctor, can you give me an hour? I just took my wife off life support next door. It took me seven years to cry again. And then I became an adolescent specialist, where I still see death occasionally, but not very often. What I really see is victims of economic, social, racial injustice. I see victims of homophobia more than anything else, because I work with homeless kids. And I don't know if you know this, but by definition, half of my kids are gay. And I'm angry. And now I've become this book author dude man, which is a very, very different hat that I did not plan for. It's something that really happened to me. And so I spent the last 10 years, half the time traveling around the world, teaching other people about raising healthy children while my own kids were growing up. But am I a good daddy? I'm actually an awesome daddy, all right? But you know who always will suffer? Celia, my wife, because I always kind of expect her to just kind of hang in there just one more day and tomorrow. I'll get home tonight at 10.30 and, um, and she'll want to tell me about her day and I'm like, can we wait till tomorrow? But if the kids were having a crisis, I would deal with it. I'm not a perfect man. What do you see here? Give me a word. It's not like a bunny rabbit, just a word. <laughs> it's chaos. If you've, ever, if you've ever met anybody who um, has a lot of chaos in their life, 
um, then what happened? And they don't have a container around it. They're nuts. Those are the people you're like, "How was your day?" And they're like, "Oh!" And they just explode. <laughs> so what we do is we build a wall around that chaos under the false belief that we will deal with things later. And then what happens is, uh, you know, so in the perfect world, what would have happened to that father is I would have gone to him and I would have said, "Could we process what this is doing to me emotionally, I'm bearing witness to the pain as your whole family is dying before you?" But it wasn't about me. Number one and number two, you know, there's a kid in the next room we have to take care of, right? So you just put it in, believing you're going to deal with it later, but you don't. So instead, what you do is you build thicker walls, thicker and thicker walls, thicker and thicker walls, until this becomes what I call a leaden box. Why lead? Because even a little bit of lead in your system is toxic, particularly to your intelligence. Why lead? Because um, even Superman can't see through lead. And uh, it's too heavy to lift up. And then what happens is um, uh, when you have uh, been, when the most passionate themes of human existence are trapped inside of a leaden box, you stop feeling. And then you wonder why you even did this stuff. And then someone opens up your lid, and then what pours out is rage. And then someone comes up to you and says, Ken, why are you so angry? This is my life. I've had the best life truly of any human being I know. My pain is that I bear witness to pain. That is my pain, all right? For the kids who I serve, um, this is their life. And what they will tell you is that marijuana slows down this head-spinning feeling. And what I will tell you before God is that the label you receive, because what we see is we see this in traumatized kids. This is what we see. We don't see this. We see this. And the label that you receive is different depending on your demographic. So if you're white and middle class, you're more likely to get a diagnosis of ADD, because ADD kids don't focus, and they can be explosive. If you are a black kid, a native kid, or a Latino kid, you're more likely to get oppositional defiant disorder or conduct disorder. Why does this matter so much? Um, what, um, what is the uh, tertiary care or quaternary care for ADD? You give um, medicine. You, give, you, know, you wrap um, uh, uh, accommodations around people. What do you do for people who are conduct disorder? You send them to prison, right? So now that we have trauma diagnoses in DSM-5, um, our job as child advocates is to get these labels changed. There's a better way. The better way is to help people build what's called a Tupperware box. It's still a container, but the stuff inside it don't stink. It's non-toxic. You divide your issues into small pieces. Residence. The way I survived residency, and the reason I began doing what you're seeing now, is that I learned that for me to bear witness to other people's pain, when it stayed inside of me, it crushed me. But when I understood that I was destined to be a child advocate, my job was to remember these stories so I could share these stories so that other people could learn to serve youth, it felt better. And what I began doing as a Tupperware box, what we do is we say, this is the story of Dorothy Strikes Enemy. This is the story of that boy, of that man in the unit. This is um, this homeless guy, um, Juan. This is the other homeless guy. I'll show you guys, uh, residents, um, I'll show you Mike's story later. And then I know what the stories are. And then when, what else about Tupperware? You don't eat everything in one time. You keep it in storage. That's what you're supposed to do. And you use your emotional tools to ladle out one story, one story that you're ready to deal with. And what do those emotional, and then after, after you take out the story, you burp the box. You close the box. What do those emotional tools look like? They look like humor. You know, that today I made you laugh today, I am the least funny guy you're ever going to meet. <laughs> Seriously. It's all about talking about intense things. And when you give someone humor, they can reboot. 
crying, laughing, praying, talking to someone who's earned your trust, writing things out, play, all of the creative arts, art, music, dance. Dr. Ken, you want to know how I feel? Let me show you my poem. Let me show you my rap. All of these things that you help kids to let out these emotions. Check this out. This is an upside down mountain. Remember I talked about breaking mountains into hills? This is another one of those techniques, the Tupperware box. The final thing that we want to do is we want kids to know that what are they doing for the community? What are they doing for um, the environment? What are they doing for the family? Why? Because we want every kid to have a sense of contribution so that they are surrounded by thank yous rather than condemnation. So that they know that they matter. The world will change for teenagers when teenagers walk down the streets and people see hope instead of someone who is dangerous. When that world happens, we will see everything in our society begin to change. And we begin in early childhood by helping kids understand how much they matter to their families, how much they matter to their communities. And what we have to do, let me tell you something again for the residents. If you think every time I walk into a room I change lives, then you're hearing a lie. The vast majority of time that I spend with human beings, I wonder if I've made the difference. All right? But when you take a risk-based approach to human beings, elucidating what is wrong with them, I am telling you you are doing a potential for harm. I am telling you that human beings do not want to change because another human being has elicited their risk. But when you use love to help them see within themselves something that they have not seen because other people have filled their hearts with condemnation, then at the very least, you're planting seeds. At the very, very least. Thank you, guys. but I'm going to also believe that he will be here. All right, Jim, you get a word as professor of pediatrics. You outrank me. I just want to make sure that the residents, I, I think that it's important. You've generalized from the population that you serve. That population lives in a community that's probably one of the most dangerous places in the United States to live. Mm -hmm. Most of those kids, if they go out at night, have witnessed murder. Our communities are really different. Yeah. They're safe. And the, the, the main thing that we've seen, our, so, so first of all, they're safe. Mm -hmm. So kids don't experience the level of community stress that your kids experience. Um, the other thing that's different is our rates of substance abuse are much higher mm -hmm. than yours. 30% of our kids have smoked marijuana in the past 30 days. 40% of our kids have binge drank in the past mm -hmm. 30 days. So our kids are drinking. There's some of our kids that are drinking because of stress, right. smoking because of stress. Right. But there's a lot of our kids that are doing it because of boredom. Right. Because our communities are deadly boring. Okay. So I think it's really important for the residents to understand when they approach a kid that it's that every kid that they see that's a substance abuser is not going to be a kid that's been abused or has stress is the overriding yeah. circumstances that are driving his or her substance use. Thank you I for want to make that point. Thank you very much. So the first question that you ask a kid when they're using drugs is what why they're doing it. And you're going to get one of those two answers. They're either going to say to chill or because it's fun because I'm bored. That you're literally going to get that answer if instead of starting with what you do, you ask why you're going to do it. So it's a great point. In terms of the generalization of stress, uh, many of my stories come from Native America or from inner city America. But I absolutely work with people from around the country. I work with lots of national programming policy. So all the, I just want to underscore one point. In your boring community, 
there is probably less child abuse than there is in the inner city. However, the rates of sexual abuse is identical across all demographics. So do not assume that in any community, your kids don't have a yeah. lower level of trauma. I, I know we're on the same page. Yeah, I don't give me want to underline that point. We don't have stressed yeah. kids in our communities. Yeah. Yeah. And the stress comes from a different source. You know, when I was talking about the medical student piece, you know, a study just came out in JAMA Pediatrics last week that made tons of national news that, you know, kids are more stressed than adults, which belies the myth that, you know, adolescence is such a, you know, what are they worried about? Um, but for most kids in America, it's academic stress, which is a very, very big part of what I actually focus on to work with that demographic. And it's what I would do if I was working with medical students. So stress comes from many, many different directions. So thank, thank you, you for Jim. that. And I, I want to make sure we have a chance and we don't have as much time. I want to thank, we have members of the Stewart family in the second row of Jake, and uh, you want to raise your hand. Uh, thank you for sponsoring our Stewart annual lectureship. I'm going to invite folks. We don't have anyone waiting outside the door. So those who want to continue the conversation with Ken can do so down front. Certainly noon in L5A. He's given a much preview about noon in L5A. And I'll even say, those who want to go over to the Haven, Steve's going to take Ken over to the Haven 10, 10 o'clock this morning. If you want to follow them over there, I don't think you would be unwelcome. And I have one final major thank you, Dr. Ginsburg. Thank you.